right. Now, last time, as you remember, John asked a question, and the question was on the subject of how come demons and Satan can be in heaven, seeing as demons and Satan are fallen, you see. Of course, in the Old Testament, you see them in heaven. Now, I began to answer that question, and during the answering of it, we went on this massive digression, and we all got so excited about it, we ended up talking about the sons of God and faith and, and things like that. And in fact, John never got his question answered. <laughs> now, therefore, I felt, well, okay, it's only right that, that John does get the question answered. So, in actual fact, what we're going to do tonight is to answer that question in a comprehensive way, and tonight we're doing Satan a biography. Now, just in case any of you have heard some of the rumours about me, I hasten to add, this is not an autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> it's a biography of Satan from the scriptures. Let's just pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to teach us. Father, we... We just want to be learning what you have in your word, mm. Lord, because we know it's going to bless us and mm. encourage us and lift us up. So, mm. Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will just come upon all of us as teacher. Lord, I just submit myself to you. Mm. Lord, I pray that that which is of me won't last, that people will lay that aside. But, Father, that that which is of you will just be retained in our hearts. Mm. Oh, Lord, just bless us, we pray, mm. in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, well, we're going to take the subject and find out what the Bible says about Satan and the demons. Kind of get their history, alright? And it's Genesis up to Revelation tonight, as normal, all over the place, <laughs> the whole story, alright? Now then, let's, let's start. Find Job, chapter 38, and we'll start at the beginning, the very, very beginning. Job and chapter 38. I'm just going to read a few verses. Job chapter 38. And I'm going to read from verse 4. Now this is the Lord posing some rhetorical questions to Job. Job has got a little bit above himself and uh, God just wants to very gently but very firmly put him in his place and so he asks him a question. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? So he's saying, come on, Job, if you're so marvellous and so wise, you tell me where you were when I created the universe around you. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And then if you go down into verse 7, God says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now we saw last time, and we'll see again today, that in the scriptures, that when you get in the Old Testament, the morning stars and the sons of God, it's all the time referring to the angels. And that what we see here, very, very clearly, is that when God sets the universe in motion, when you and I had our start as mankind, we can see that the angels were already created. The angels are not part of the universe we live in. The angels, they haven't always been there. They had a start. There was a time when God zapped them into being. But they haven't always been there. But they were created before you and I were. When the universe came into existence, the angels were there to observe it. And we said last time, I'll go over it again, for the reason for the angels being called the sons of God. 
And the phrase sons of God refers all the way through the scriptures to any being who has been created ex nihilo by God, by which I mean zapped. One minute they're not there, and then zap the word of God, and they're there. They don't come from any prior being except God himself. And we can see how the angels, because they were a created beings, they didn't come from God, just created them. Therefore, they're sons of God. They didn't come from anywhere but from God himself, a direct ex nihilo thing. And we saw as well that Adam... In the genealogy of Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, it goes right back to Adam, and that we read Cain and Abel, the son of Adam, but Adam was the son of God. And Adam was the son of God because God sapped him into being. He didn't have a mum, he didn't have a dad, God created him on the spot. Therefore, Adam was the son of God. Not Eve, because Eve came from Adam, but Adam was a son of God. We saw that Israel are the sons of God. Because we were saying that if you and I are English or British or Irish, Bejabers, whichever one you are, you get your... <laughs> that name has come from where you've been brought up. I'm English, I was brought up in England. But we saw that with Israel, they're the one race who existed before they had a land. And the whole point about the Jews is God took old Abraham and he said, right, there is no such thing as a nation called the Jews. So he took Abraham, who was a Gentile, and a Gentile is a non-Jew, and he said, Abraham, now you're going to be a Jew. And we saw that the Jews, as a race, they came through Isaac and Jacob. Now, Isaac was born of a miraculous birth, because Abraham and his wife couldn't have children. So again, we see how Israel are the sons of God, because they didn't come from anywhere. Can you see, as a nation, they were created on the spot by God. And then the fourth lot in the Bible, who are called the sons of God now, of course, are you and I. For the simple reason that when you became a Christian, when you believed on Jesus, the moment you turned to Jesus as your saviour, you became a new creation. And a new you was created the minute you were born again, and God did it supernaturally. And hence, you and I, as Christians, we're not born of the will of man or of flesh. We're born of God because we've been born again. So there you see why it is that in the Old Testament, the angels are among those who are called the sons of God. And this phrase is going to, uh, we're going to come back to it later on. But the first thing we've seen is this, that when God zapped our universe into being, the angels were already there. They had already been in existence. We don't know how long for, but then as soon as you ask how long, Remember that time didn't exist until God created the universe. It's very interesting. In Genesis, the first verse of the Bible says, In the beginning God. Now then, our modern science, post-Einstein, has shown us this, that, there's a, that time and space go hand in hand. You cannot have space without time, but you cannot have, to have time without space. It's only as you've got stuff there that you've got time. Alright? Now, it's interesting, 20th century man has now found this. But in the Bible, the first verse, it does not say, in the beginning was God, and God created the heavens and the earth. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the incredible thing is, 
that when that was written by Moses all those thousands of years ago, but under the inspiration of God himself, Moses ties up the concept of time with the concept of matter. And it's taken us after Einstein to get to that. The Bible links that time only existed once there was a material creation, you see. So it's no use asking how long the angels existed when God zapped everything into being, because there was no time in that sense. But we simply know that when God created us and the universe, the angels were there to watch it. They were already in existence. And in Genesis 3, don't turn to it, we find something else. Because by God started on the universe, he says, I want one, all right? So day one, he got going. By the end of day six, he'd finished, all right? It only took six days. And then a very short time after that, Adam and Eve are confronted by the devil in the Garden of Eden. So we can now go one step further and know that whatever it was that happened amongst the angels, whereby some are goodies and some are baddies, and we're going to find out exactly what that was. Whatever happened, we can know that it happened before God created our universe. Alright, so the angels had already rebelled against God by the time it happened. Now, we're going to home in on Satan, because he's the one who's really interesting us at the moment. But in doing so, we're going to look at the comprehensive history passed right up to the future, to the very, very end of all the demons. Okay, quite an exciting evening. Have you turned to Isaiah 14? Isaiah chapter 14. And if you find verse 12, but before I read, I want you to understand the context of this. From verses 3 and 4, um, yeah, here, what we have is Isaiah bringing the word from God against the Babylonian king. And what happens is up to verse 11, everything that you've got there so far applies to a man, the actual king. But when you get into verse 12, immediately you hit language that no way you could apply to a man. And what we have here, we're going to see a parallel thing in Ezekiel fairly soon. But what you have here is that God is speaking to the king of that country. But then he begins to speak to the power behind that human king. Now, it seems to be fairly clear from the scriptures that Satan usually has an HQ on the earth. There's usually somewhere where he himself is using as his HQ on earth. He spends a lot of time in heaven, we'll see that, but he spends time on earth and he's got an HQ. Now, at this particular point in history, and it changes, but at this particular point in history, um, here, Chaldea, is the headquarters of Satan on earth. And here, Isaiah, he's speaking a taunt, not against the human king, but against the power behind the human power, Satan himself. So let's start reading from verse 12. And it says, How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I'll set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far north. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now immediately here in verse 12, this phrase, O day star. Now there's a Latin word which means day star, an old Latin word, and it's Lucifer. And that is where we get the idea that once Satan's name was Lucifer. Now let me inform you that Satan's name never was Lucifer. It's a misunderstanding. Because Lucifer, or Odaystar, is not a personal name like John or Sheila or anything like that. It's a title. Christ isn't a name, it's a title. All right. And here we have Odaystar being the title of this being before he rebelled against God and was renamed. And his title is Odaystar, Son of Dawn. Also, it can be bringer of light, day star, bringer of light, morning star. These are the words, the titles used of this being before he actually fell. And this is exactly why, in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives the warning that Satan can appear as an angel of light. Now, why is it that Satan can appear as an angel of light? Because he is the angel of light always has been from the day he was created satan was the bringer of light and satan even though now he is in darkness he can still appear as the angel of light that he was created to be and that what we're seeing here is the beginnings of the problem with satan now it says how are you fallen from heaven and it talks about you said in your heart i will ascend to heaven now, these are not literal terms at this precise time. We're going to see that at one particular point in his career, Satan is physically kicked out of heaven and never allowed to return, and he's sent down to the earth and held there. But we're going to see that that hasn't happened yet. Contrary to popular teaching, that hasn't happened yet. But here, what we're talking about is how are you fallen from heaven? We're speaking in terms here of falling from grace. And that what we have here, we're going to see the sin in Satan whereby he lost his authority with God in heaven because he sinned. So in this sense of the falling from heaven, we're seeing here that Satan fell from grace. We're seeing here that because of sin, he lost the authority and the function that he had in heaven before God. It says, how you are cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. You said in your heart, and now here we have it, this is what happened whereby all this trouble with the devil actually appeared. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Now, the point is, it says, above the stars of God. Now, who are the stars of God? Going back to last time, we saw that in the Old Testament, the morning stars, the stars of God, or the sons of God, were the angels. And we saw that until Jesus came and was glorified, that the order in creation was that you had God, then the angels, then man. But through the coming of Jesus, and after he ascended into heaven, that the order was changed. And in fact, you have God, Christians, angels, unbelievers. And it's changed. But can you see here that Satan said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Now, in the, um, at this particular time, what you've got is God is number one and the angels are number two in creation. That's the order. But here, Satan wants to rise above the stars. 
He wants to be one up. And what we're going to see is that Satan wanted to be God himself. He became unable to be sort of number two. He wanted to be number one. And what his heart was filled with was the desire to be God himself. It's incredible pride. It says here, I will set my throne on high. Can you see, Satan decides one day, we'll, we'll see the madness of this, but Satan decides that he's not going to be God's number two anymore, he is going to be God. It's kind of madness of pride that comes into it. He says, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far north. Now what's the Mount of Assembly in the far north? Well I'll tell you, I haven't got time to go into it, take my word for it if you like. But the Mount of Assembly on the far north is the millennial temple from which for a thousand years Jesus is going to rule this earth with a rod of iron. So of course Satan doesn't want Jesus to be there, Satan wants to be there. And he says that when it comes to that thousand year reign of Christ, I'm going to do it. It's going to be me, I want to be God, I'm going to take the place of Jesus. Now this throws a bit of light on the Antichrist in the last days. Because in Greek, the word anti, when you get it in the Greek, that it can mean various things according to the context, and sometimes it can mean against. But in the phrase anti-Christ, it doesn't mean against, it means instead of. But there are certain times in the Greek, if you get the Greek word anti, it means instead of. And the Antichrist is Satan's attempt to rule instead of Jesus. It's not that the Antichrist is against Jesus, although obviously he is, but he's an attempt by Satan to be there instead of Jesus, to become Jesus himself. He says, also, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. In the Old Testament, the clouds are always a picture of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. Do you remember that as Israel went through the... Um, the wilderness in the day the Holy Spirit was with them uh, as a pillar of fire uh, sorry of smoke or a cloud at night he became fire so they could see him you see but the point is that clouds and smoke in the Old Testament are a picture of the glory of God and if you follow through in the Old Testament I throw this in for no extra charge the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament do you know who it is it's the Holy Spirit it's the Holy Spirit Wherever the Shekinah glory appears in Israel and in the temple, it was the Holy Spirit. And the point is that when we were baptised in the Holy Spirit, we received the Shekinah glory of God. But here what we're seeing is that Satan is saying, I'm going to ascend above the clouds of God, I, I am going to be more glorious than God himself. Now again, can you see the madness that entered the mind of this creature? Regardless of how wonderful he was, and we're going to see just how glorious Satan was, but the madness in Satan when through his pride he couldn't handle being number two and he wanted to be number one. And it ends by saying this, I will make myself like the most high. I will make myself like the most high. This is what Satan's plan is. This is what Satan wanted and this is what he's going to strive for until the end. He's determined to be God. Now, can you see that it is logically impossible for him to be God? It's logically impossible. You might as well be determined to find a four-sided triangle. You're not going to find it. It's logically impossible. But this is the madness and the pride that has entered the heart of Satan. Now then, let me give you a reason why I think this was all sparked off in Satan. 
Obviously, for a certain time, he had been quite happy serving God. And something happened and he changed. Something happened that he couldn't handle and he decided, I'm going to do something about this. And I wonder if it was because eventually he learned of God's plan to create men and women. And the difference between us and the angels is we're created in the image of God and the angels aren't. Which meant that as soon as God created men, that it meant from that time onwards that there was a race of beings who had the potential for greater closeness and fellowship with God than the angels. Now I wonder if Satan discovered as well precisely what God creating us was going to mean. That one day he would send his son as a man to become a little lower than the angels because man in the Old Testament was lower than the angels. But we've seen that when Jesus was glorified and given a name above every name, <clears throat> that Jesus took believing man to number two, knocking the angels down to number three. And I wonder if it was because Satan thought, playing second fiddle to God, I've been quite happy with. But I wonder if he was unable to come to terms with eventually playing second fiddle to you and I. Can you see what I'm getting at? And that the very idea of the creation of man, he knew it was going to come. That Satan couldn't handle that and so he rebelled. He said no and then the pride turned into madness. And he said I am going to be God. And this I believe is the reason why Satan decided he was going to rebel and go against the Lord. Also we're going to see a clue, I can't be dogmatic about this, but a clue that Satan also was the angel who was going to become the guardian of mankind. The guardian of mankind. Now bear that in mind and turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, in verse 1, we have this, Ezekiel chapter 28. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. Now, here we have a prophecy to a man, the prince of Tyre. But do you remember in Isaiah, I said that then the prophecy pierced beyond the man to the real power, Satan. Now then, go with me to verse 11. Remember, it's a prophecy that has begun to be to the prince of Tyre. Verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre. Can you see, this bit of the prophecy is to someone else. Now, who is it to? It's to the power behind the prince of Tyre. The king was the human prince of Tyre, but the real king, the spiritual power, Satan's changed his HQ, alright, now he's in Tyre. And the power behind the man on the throne was Satan himself. And so here we have a mourning from God's heart directly to Satan, mourning over what it was and the whole thing that Satan eventually fell from grace. Now let's read through these verses because we learn a lot about this being whom we now know as Satan or the devil. Thus says the Lord, you were the signet of perfection. The signet of perfection. Now that phrase there, the signet, a king would have a signet ring and that signet ring was his seal. 
And there was only one thing that carried as much authority as a king in the ancient world, and it was his seal. If he wrote a letter to somebody, now if he took it himself and you opened the letter, he'd have you put to death for invading the privacy of the king. But obviously kings don't deliver their own mail. So he'd write the letter or the scroll and he'd seal it with wax, with his ring. Now, if anyone broke that seal of that signet ring apart from the person who that scroll was addressed to, they would be put to death. Can you see the signet is always a picture of authority. The signet ring of the king carried his full personal authority. And we're going to see the authority that Satan had before God. And here we can see that in fact Satan was the number one of the angelic creation. Even amongst the angels, there are different tiers of authority. We're going to see those in a few minutes. But Satan was the number one of all the angels. He was the absolute king king. He was full of wisdom, and he was perfect in beauty. Verse 13, you were in Eden the garden of God. Now, it's understandable that people here think that's referring to the garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. It's not. For instance, if you were to turn to Ezekiel 31, don't, but I just give you that, you'll find that there are lots of things that we've got here on earth which are copies of what God's got at his home in heaven. And there's a garden in heaven, and it's called Eden. Therefore, it's quite logical when God created the garden on earth, he called it Eden as well. But here, it's picturing that Satan was in Eden, the garden of God. It's talking about him living in heaven. That was his rightful place, Eden, the garden of God. There was an earthly Eden, it was destroyed in the flood, no one will ever find it. But there's a heavenly Eden upon which the earthly one was based. In heaven, there's the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. Whereas down here, we've got an earthly copy of it, you see? Lots of things that are on earth are on earth because they're in heaven. God liked them in heaven. He thought one of those would be ever so nice on earth. God likes gardens, all right? Jesus said that my father is the vine dresser. He said my father is a gardener. God likes gardening. So he's got a garden in heaven, and why not? Every man should have what he wants in his own home, and heaven is God's home. So here it's talking about Satan being in Eden, the garden of God, in heaven. Now listen to this. Every precious stone was your covering. Carnelian, topaz, jasper, chrysolite, beryl, onyx, sapphire, carbuncle and emerald, and wrought in gold were your settings and your engravings. Now, there's no particular reason that you need know this, but those stones were set on the breastplate of the high priest in Israel. Those, those stones were the insignia of the number one authority in Israel, the high priest. If you, uh, sort of like in Exodus 28, again, don't, I'm just giving you these, you can look like laser. Exodus 28, go through the robes of the high priest, and he's got a breastplate, and all those stones are on it. Now, can you see that the position, we're building up a picture of what Satan's job was in heaven. Satan was, as it were, the great high priest of heaven. He was the number one religious authority in heaven below God. All right? That is the position that this being 
whom we now call Satan, had. Number one, as it were, the great high priest of heaven. Then in verse 14, this is the real clincher. As the anointed guardian cherub, I placed you. Now remember, this is God speaking. And he's lamenting over this being. And he says, as the anointed guardian cherub, I placed you. Now the whole point is this, that here we're going to see that Satan was the one who, for God and in heaven, was the one who allowed or forbade anyone to have access to the Lord, a guardian cherub. Now if you turn to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, and we'll have a look at this thing about cherubs, alright, because Satan was a cherub. Now, just clear up one thing. When you, when you get a cherub, all right, a cherub is singular. You don't get cherubs, you get cherubim, because in Hebrew, an im is our s, all right? So you get one cherub or several cherubim. Now then, let's look at what happened when Adam got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, so we know there's more than one cherub, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, in scripture, the cherubim are guardians. They're God's guardians. They're always there guarding something, protecting something. So hence, the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve were thrown out, it had to be guarded so no one could go there again. And the cherubim were the ones who guarded the way to the tree of life. Now then, the point is that Satan was the anointed guardian cherub. And it says he was on the holy mountain of God. And what we've got here is that Satan was the angel who guarded the very access to the throne of God. The picture we're painting here is quite this, that Satan was God's right-hand man. Satan was absolutely number one in heaven. The cherubs are at the top, but Satan was the number one amongst the cherub or the cherubim. Now then, we've talked about the cherubim. Let's just list out the various degrees of angelic authority. Also, you get the seraphim. Now, it's the same thing, the seraphim or seraphs, all right? So you get one seraph or two seraphim. Now then, about the cherubim, in 1 Kings 6, 24, we read a description when they built the temple on the ark, they had to sculptor the cherub, all right? And we learn from that that the cherub, a cherub had two wings, all right? Cherubim have two wings. Now the seraphim, and the only place we come across them is in Isaiah 6. The seraphim have six wings. And the seraphim, when Isaiah sees the Lord in all his glory, the seraphim are standing either side of the throne of God. Alright? Now they've got six wings. Now with two, they hide their face. With two, they hide their feet. And with two, they fly. Because... What they're doing is they're hiding themselves so they don't detract from the glory of God. Absolute humility. They're hiding oh, themselves so they don't detract from the glory of God. But the thing about the seraphim, we've seen that the cherub are God's guardians. 
and that Satan was the one who, who had absolute authority for access to the king. If you want to go and see a king, you end up with his personal secretary, his right-hand man, who escorts you in. And you can't go in until the right-hand man says you can. That was Satan's job in heaven. When an angel wanted to go and have a word with the Lord, he made the appointment with Satan. You see, Satan was the one who guarded the entrance to God, the highest position. But the seraphim are slightly different. Because when Isaiah realises that he's a man of sinful lips, then the seraphim, they bring the burning coal and touch his lips, and he's made clean. Now then, the cherub are guardians, and Satan controlled access to the throne of God. But the seraphim, who are below the old cherubim, the seraphim, they are God's, as it were, personal valets. All right? They are the ones who do the bits and personal pieces that God wants done. For instance, Isaiah was standing in front of him in heaven. God wanted a coal to touch his lips, but the king doesn't do something if he's got his valets there. And the seraphim, if you like, are the personal men servants of God. So Satan, personal secretary to the king, all right, the cherub. The seraphim are like the men servants. And then below them you get the archangels and you get the angels. The archangels are like the generals and the angels are the general kind of foot soldiers. And archangels and angels don't have any wings. And that's how you can distinguish from the Bible who exactly you're reading about. But the point is that what we've established is Satan was God's high priest. He was the number one in heaven. He controlled access to the throne of God. He was the high priest, the one who could stand in front of God any time he wanted. He didn't have to get permission at all. Absolute number one in authority. And of course, that was the authority he lost when he sinned. And hence we read that he was cast down, in the sense lost that authority and his job in heaven. Now what we're going to see now is that even though Satan's lost his job, he's Satan on another one now, we're going to see what that one is. But he's lost his job, but he still has access to heaven. Don't assume that when Satan sinned, he was kicked out in heaven. And we're going to see that this war in heaven that people talk about hasn't happened yet. And most definitely, it did not happen before the creation, hence the universe started off in a mess, the old gap theory. Absolute rubbish. The war in heaven hasn't happened yet. I'm going to show you exactly when that happens. But let's establish in the Old Testament that Satan had access to heaven, even though he had fallen from grace. And if you turn to Job chapter 1. Job and chapter 1. And verse 6. Now we've established, I hope, that the sons of God in the Old Testament are the angels. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Whence have you come? Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now then, one or two things there. Firstly, we see quite clearly Satan had access to heaven in the Old Testament after he fell. But when God says to him, where have you been? Satan says, I've been walking to and fro on the earth. Now that's a Hebrew phrase, and it's a phrase they use for ownership. Show it to any Jew and he'll tell you, oh yes, it's a sort of idiom for ownership. All right. It's not literal walking up and down, although Satan does that as well. But the whole point here is that God says, where have you been, Satan? And what Satan says, he says, I've been on my planet that I own. 
That's what God is saying. And then you get this great controversy again about Job, which we're not going to go into. But can you see the point that I said that it's there's just a clue in Scripture that Satan would have been the guardian cherub no longer to God, but to God's creation on planet Earth. And therefore, Satan, because God had given it to him, <coughs> Satan owned the planet Earth. He does. He did own it. We're going to see a change that happens. But up to this point, Satan had authority on Earth. It was his, as Paul calls him, the God of this world. Now also, let's just have a quick um, look at this name he's got. Because when he fell, he got a different name. He got two. One was Satan, and that Greek word is Satanus, and it means the adversary. It means the foe. It means the one who's fighting against you. And he's called Satanus, or Satan, because he's fighting against God, he's fighting against the creation of God, against us, and he's fighting against the plan that God has got to save us all. Alright? So therefore, Satan is called the adversary. Now then, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. And again, we'll continue establishing that um, Satan had free access to heaven throughout the Old Testament period. Zechariah chapter 3. And we see this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now, don't get this mixed up with the Joshua who led them into Canaan. This is a different Joshua. It's several hundred years later. This is Joshua, the high priest. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the burning? Now then, here we have, and I'm not going to go into what the passage is his previous job. And his job now is the accuser of the brethren. And the word accuser in the Greek is diabolos. And that is the word we get the devil from. Hence, one of the names of Satan is the devil or the slanderer. Hence, we talk about something being diabolical. It comes from this Greek word, diabolos, talking about the devil. And the whole point is that here, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. It's not our subject tonight, but that is what Satan is doing. Because we have been born again, because Jesus dealt with sin, all right, there is no charge against God's elect. Now, Satan is the adversary to that, char to that, uh, to that work. So what is Satan doing all the time? He's bringing charges against us, trying to convince God that it's unjust for him to have fellowship with us. He'll lose all the time. But the main thing that I'm trying to establish here is that Satan at this point still has access into heaven. Now again, later we're going to see a time when he's kicked out for good and all the demons and they're never allowed there again. But we get to that in a few moments. Now then, we must begin a digression, alright? And the digression is this. Most of the fallen angels, i.e. the demons who rebelled with Satan, are still free to roam between earth and heaven and in the atmosphere. But not all of them. Some of those demons are no longer free. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. And we'll establish these demons who at the moment are not free in the slightest. 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to read verse 4. And Peter says this, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to the pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment, 
And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. Now that's all we need to know. Remember Noah. The point is, here, we're told about some angels who sinned, and they were cast into hell. Now I've said again and again and again, the word hell is an unbiblical word. It's an old English transliteration of the Hebrew word Sheol. And that people think of hell as being the name of the overall place of the undead, and it's all wrong. We've done this before here. There are different compartments at the centre of the earth to contain the dead, all right? One of them's in heaven now. That's the believer's one. But there's one there for the demons. And in fact, in the Greek, it doesn't say hell at all. It says Tartaruo, all right? And it means Tartarus. I'll read it again this time from the Greek. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, and it's the name of a place. And there is a place which is at the centre of the earth called Tartarus. And what happened is that there were a group of demons who ended up cast down into there so that they couldn't escape. Turn with me to Genesis 6 and we'll establish exactly who these demons are and why it was that they have been locked up into Tartarus. As we're going to see, they're still there. Genesis chapter 6. I'll start reading at verse 1. When men began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair and they took to wife such as them as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, but his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. Now then, here we have, just before the flood, it's 120 years before the flood, and the sons of God start marrying. Now, who are the sons of God? Just want to find out if you've been listening. In the Old Testament, who are the sons of God? Angels. The angels. Now then, what we... Because demons are angels, you see. Now, what we've got here are some of the angels who rebelled. And what they do is they begin to physically manifest themselves. And they start mating with men and women, or with women, right? <laughs> now then, what happens is that you then begin to get the birth of babies, but babies that are not truly human. They're half man and they're half angels. Can you see that? Now, what Satan is doing here, remember, right from the fall, as soon as sin came into the world, God said to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman shall come and save you, alright? So Satan, from the start, had to start working on preventing the seed of the woman being born. Now, we know that the seed of the woman was going to be the seed of a woman. Therefore, this man from God was going to be born of a mother, a human mother. Therefore, Satan introduces the first genetic engineering experiment that there had ever been. Because if Satan could play with the genes and start to crossbreed them with demons who aren't human, can you see after a while the human creation would be gone? You'd have a mutant strain which were no longer human. Therefore, there wouldn't be any humans there for the seed to come through. And this was the first major attempt of Satan to prevent the coming of Jesus by trying to so arrange things that there wasn't a human race for him to come to, but a mutant strain who weren't truly human anymore, but had been genetically played about with. And of course, it's from these, this thing that went on that the Nephilim came from the giants. 
And you meet some pretty weird people in Old Testament times, six fingers, six toes, massive blokes they were and stuff like that. They were the result of the mating that went on. And it was for this reason that God said, now if this evil goes on, Satan will have won. The human race will have been overrun by this mutant strain. And that is why God sent the flood. That was the evil that happened that God had to destroy in the flood. And of course we read this, that in verse 3 it says, My spirit, then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, for this day shall be 120 years. Bad translation, it's my spirit shall not strive for man forever. His day shall be, uh, 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 the day shall be 120 years. Now some people say here that the Holy Spirit will only strive with someone for a certain amount of time. And that you get to the point, say if you're not saved, the Holy Spirit convicts you, but he doesn't strive with you forever, and there comes a day when if you say no, that's it, and you haven't got any more chances. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. The Holy Spirit starts preaching the gospel to you the minute that you're of the age of consent, in the Lord's eyes, right up until the moment you die. This verse, which people quote to back that, has got nothing to do with it. What God is saying is the days of their flesh will be 120 years. He says, you've got 120 years left, then I'm going to destroy the lot of you. All right? And you can actually work it out. But 120 years later, the flood came, you see. So then, here, what we've got are these beings, these demons who became human. Well, they didn't become human. They took on a physical form and started to crossbreed and produce a mutant strain. Hence, you got the flood. Let's see it again. Turn to Jude, the epistle of Jude, just before Revelation. Subjects like this are great because you cover all the verses that no one understands what they mean. <laughs> and then it, it's all absolutely clear. Jude, I'm going to read verse 6. And this is Jude talking about precisely the same demons. Right. Verse 6, And the angels that did not keep their own estate, but left their proper dwelling, have been kept by him in eternal chains in the nether gloom, until the judgment of the great day. Now then, can you see that they did not keep their former estate? Their estate, or authority, or place in the scheme of things, was a spirit being's. They left it, and they took on human form. All right, they left their proper dwelling, and the word for dwelling is a body. Can you see, this is the demon they're talking about. They changed their state from being non-material spirit beings, angels, to becoming corporeal or incarnate spirit beings. Not human beings, but taking on a fleshly physical form, you see. And here we read that they're kept by him in chains until the nether gloom, until the judgment of the great day. Do you remember the Gadarene swine, the demoniac? And when Jesus came, what did the demons cry out? They begged him not to send them into the abyss. They begged him not to do that. Now, you and I have no authority to send a demon into Tartarus. There's only one lot who were there, and that's the lot who did this in Genesis 6. But the point is, these demons knew that Jesus had the authority to throw them straight down to Tartarus. And they begged him not to. They said, don't send us into the abyss. Now then, the Greek word for abyss is abusos, and it also means the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit. And I want you to remember that, because we're going to come back to the bottomless pit a bit later on. Okay. So then, where we've got there is this group of demons 
who from the time of the flood onwards they were chucked down into Tartarus, their sin was so grave, they were so evil and so dangerous that God has kept them down there and they're still down there to this very day. Now then, in regards to all this, a change begins to occur. And the change occurs with the coming of Jesus to the earth to die on the cross. Turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse 31. And Jesus says this. He's speaking here in the context of his death on the cross. He says, now is the judgment of this world. All right? The judgment of this world is simply that the sin of the world was taken away by Jesus on the cross. The sin of the world, past, present and future, was judged in Jesus on the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. Now we've already seen that the idea of casting out is it's not in this sense a literal thing. It's talking about the loss of authority. And what Jesus is saying is that now I'm about to die and the God of this, you know, the God of this world is about to lose the authority that he's got on this planet that I am on. Uh, move over into chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 8 to 11. Jesus here is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he says, when he comes, he'll convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me. Remember, no one in this world is separated from God because of their sin. Their sin was put on the cross. They're separated from God because they haven't believed on Jesus. You see? So of sin because they do not believe in me. Um, of righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And Jesus is talking that a judgment was going to come on the devil when he died on the cross. And as a result of that judgment, and we're going to see more judgments that are yet to come, but as a result of that, Satan loses the authority in the world that he's got. Now then, in the Old Testament, Satan genuinely had authority over this world. Why? Satan genuinely owned this world. Why? Because men and women were separated from God by sin. Men and women followed the devil rather than Jesus. Therefore, judicially, men and women fell under the ownership of the devil because they were going with what the devil was doing rather than what God was doing. So because men were under sin, everyone who was ever born were under sin, therefore Satan was their just master. Can you see? They were owned lock, stock and barrel. The world was owned, had authority over by Satan himself. But of course, something is now going to change. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he dealt fully, 100% with sin. And the minute that Jesus died, the sin barrier between a man and God was broken down completely. Therefore, the sin barrier isn't there anymore. Therefore, judicially, Satan has got no authority over anyone because the sin of everyone, even unbelievers, has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. So whereas up until Jesus died on the cross, Satan had all he owned this world. It was him. And nowhere in the Old Testament did God actually deny it. it the earth was Satan's. No two ways about it. But the point is, once Jesus died, the sin issue was dealt with. Satan lost the authority he had, and now he's a squatter. Before, the earth was his home, rightfully, it belonged to him, but when Jesus died and dealt with sin, Satan became a squatter. 
and the ministry of the church is to serve him the eviction order. Everywhere we go, we can evict Satan. He's a squatter. He's not the owner anymore. He's a squatter. Now, in 1 John 3, verse 8, it says this, The Son of God was made manifest to destroy the works of the devil. Now, that word destroy in the Greek is katagio. I've spoken about it before. It doesn't mean to destroy as in obliterate. It means to neutralize. Alkaline katagio's acid, all right, neutralizes it, which means that wherever we hit up against the power of Satan, Jesus neutralizes it through us. On the cross, the power that Satan had over the world was sin. On the cross, Jesus died and took the sin of everyone away. Therefore, Satan's power over them was neutralized. Therefore, as soon as someone comes to Jesus, they realize that Satan has no power over them. The power of Satan has been neutralized. Turn to Colossians 2. We'll see this in more details. It's important to realize that this is what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Because it was on the cross that the sin issue was dealt with once and for all. Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, having cancelled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them triumphing over them, in, over them in him through the cross. Now then, the whole thing to realize is this, that what Paul is saying, he's using the picture of what happens when the Romans crucified somebody. Now the Romans were very hot on justice, and when someone was crucified, they nailed a plank of wood on the top of the cross with the crime that they were dying for. And they nailed that crime to the cross. So that once the bloke had died, that crime had been paid for, you see. He died on the cross, and the offence was on the cross there, and he was dying for that offence. Now, once it was nailed up and he was dead, that offence never need be paid for again, because it's already been paid for. He's died. Now, the important thing to realise, do you remember that um, Pilate nailed a bit of wood to the cross of Jesus. And the reason he did that is because the Romans had to nail to the cross the offence that the man was being crucified for. But the thing was, Pilate could find no offence in Jesus whatsoever. So what did he write on it? The King of the Jews. Now the point is this, because Jesus was innocent. So Pilate had no offence to write up on that cross. He just wrote the King of the Jews. Now then, the point is that God wrote on that your sins and my sins and everyone's sins, even the ones they haven't committed yet. The sins of everyone, past, present and future, those who believe and those that don't, were nailed to the cross of Jesus because Jesus was dying for those very sins. And once Jesus died and paid the price for them, there never needs to be a judgment for those things again. That's why for you and I in Christ, there's no condemnation. There's no judgment for you and I in regards to our sinfulness in that sense, because the judgment went on Jesus. And of course, the minute this happened, Satan lost his power over mankind. And of course, it says that he disarmed 
the principalities and powers. He neutralised them. The only weapon Satan had was men and women's sin. Now their sin has been dealt with on the cross by Jesus. No weapons. Satan is unarmed. He's been thoroughly frisked and his weapons have been taken away by the Holy Spirit. And so God disarmed Satan, made a public example of him and triumphed over him in the cross. Therefore, here, the minute that Jesus died, Satan has lost his power 100%. He has been neutralized. And the thing to notice is that it was done in public, which meant that Satan, along with every demon on the face of the earth, saw Jesus died and had their weapons stripped away from them. Every demon with Satan on the face of the earth knew that when Jesus died and said it is finished, they were beaten once and for all, for all time. Except one group of demons we've talked about who weren't there to see it and didn't know that Jesus had died on the cross and beaten the devil. Who are they? The demons who are down in Tartarus. Now, it only seems fair that someone ought to tell them. After all, they've been locked up down in Tartarus, all right, for nigh on 2,000 years at this point when Jesus died on the cross. They don't like it down there, and they're itching to get out so they can get on with the job of beating Jesus. Now, it's only fair that someone ought to tell them. And the most appropriate thing to happen is that Jesus tells them himself. So turn with me to 1 Peter, and we will see exactly and 100% this very thing. That when Jesus died, he paid a visit to these demons in Tartarus. 1 Peter, chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading from verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. So this is talking about the death of Jesus and what happened immediately afterwards. That the, right, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, because when Jesus died on the cross, his body went into the ground, therefore he was technically dead, being made alive by the Spirit. And remember, when you die, you still exist. But Jesus was God himself, so he's made alive by the Spirit. Just like when you and I die, we lose our body, we're put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Boom! Off we go, carried by the angels, to paradise in heaven to be with Jesus. So then, here, Jesus is in the place of the dead in his spirit, all right, in his soul, the real him, by the power of the spirit. Now, remember, at this point, the believer's compartment was at the centre of the earth called paradise. He said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. We saw that when Jesus rose again from the dead, that, in fact, paradise was transferred with him to heaven. So now, when you die, you don't go down as a believer, you go up. Of course, the unbelievers are still down there in their compartment, the same as it's always been. But the point is, Jesus, as soon as he died, for three days and three nights, he's down there in paradise with the unbelievers, apart from one brief spell to carry out his job. Verse 19, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now then, some people say that here is, here is people getting a second chance and that Jesus is preaching the gospel to them. He's not. I'll demonstrate that. Firstly, nowhere in the Bible are men and women called spirits. We're not. We're living souls. Angels and demons are spirits, but we are living souls. But also, this word preached is important. If I was going out to preach the gospel, I'm 
telling forth something with the one design to get them to respond. Now that word is euangelion, alright? And it means to preach the gospel to get a response. That's not the word here. The word here is caruso. And that word simply means a proclamation. A town crier stands up and gives a caruso, alright? He proclaims the word of the king. Your response has got nothing to do with it, he's simply stating facts. And what happens here is that Jesus, for these three days, is with all the believers in the believers' compartment, old paradise, alright, down he is, but then he thinks, these demons, they don't know that I've beaten them. So he zaps over into Tartarus, and he proclaims to them to the victory. And he says, I've done it, I've beaten you, you were the only ones who didn't know, that's it, you're finished, alright, forget it, you've never got a chance, you've been beaten. Can you see here, this verse is Jesus proclaiming to them the fact that he just died on the cross and had beaten them once and for all. Now then, we're moving on at a rapid rate because of the time, but let's move on to the next stage, alright, because that, everything I've said, is how it stands up until this day, alright, that is how it stands. But the next phase in the judgment on Satan is this. There's going to come a day when Satan is thrown out of heaven for good and never allowed back in again. And God says, right, bye-bye. And out he goes. Now then, let's look at this. Turn to Revelation 12. And of course, because it's in the book here, we can know exactly when this happens because... It's talking about the Great Tribulation. And the book of John, when he reveals what the Lord revealed to him on Patmos, from verse 5 onwards is a blow-by-blow chronological account of the seven years on earth which begin as soon as the church is raptured, the church is raptured, then this seven-year period happens. And at the end of that seven years you get the second coming of Jesus and he sets his kingdom up on earth. Now then, What we're going to see is it's during this time, this seven years, that haven't happened yet, right smack bang in the middle of those seven years, Satan is then kicked out of heaven down to earth. Let's read verse 4 first. Talk about the devil. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. Now, first of all, this thing about his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Who are the stars of heaven? Angels. Angels, well done, well done, you've been listening. Now, but this thing, we've already seen that walking to and fro is a Jewish way of talking about ownership, all right? Now then, sweeping something down is a picture of authority. Idioms, the Jews know what this means, no problem. It's difficult for us because we have to find out the way that the Jews thought. But here, what it's saying, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven telling us that Satan has authority over one-third of the angels. And it is this verse that tells us that when Satan rebelled against God, even before the universe came into being, a third of the angels pitched in with him. You see? Now, the, the angels are innumerable. You can't number them. I mean, there is a specific number that's too vast for us to imagine. But a third of them went with Satan and became demons. Now then, the context of this, if you move down into verse 7, we read that war arose in heaven. But the immediate context here is the devil chasing the woman who has born a child into the wilderness. Now, and into the wilderness for 1,260 days. I haven't time to go into this in detail, but the woman is Israel. Alright, the woman here is Israel. She's brought forth her Messiah, and it talks about the child being caught up to heaven and to God. 
all right, and Jesus ascended when he finished on earth. But the point is, in the last days, God brings Jerusalem back into his plan and restores Israel. Now then, the context here is the woman being chased into the wilderness, and 1,260 days is three and a half years. Now then, after this period of time, after the rapture of the church, three and a half years later, the armies of the Antichrist march into the holy city and desecrate it. Now then, Jesus, in Matthew and Luke, has already given the believers instructions. When you see that happen, the abomination in the temple, get out. Now all the believers, all the Jews who have got converted through this seven years, or the three and a half years that have gone by, they flee. And it's the woman, Israel, fleeing into the wilderness. And they flee out to Ammon, Moab and Edom, and it's a place of safety as prophesied in Daniel, and there the Antichrist can't touch them. So the key thing to know is this, the context of this is that Satan has just chased the believing Israelites out of the holy city when the Antichrist has set up his idol in the temple which means we are now three and a half years into the tribulation, all right? Now then, verse 7, now war arose in heaven. Now, when? Three and a half years into the great tribulation. This hasn't happened yet. But when it does, war arose in heaven. This is when the battle in heaven takes place. Michael and the angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. After this war, Satan cannot get into heaven. So the war hasn't happened, because we've already seen that Satan has access to heaven. The war is yet future. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole earth, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, so then, what we've got here is now Satan and all his demons who at the moment have access to earth and heaven and outer space in between, the prince of the power of the air in the atmosphere, they are now kicked out of heaven once and for all and they are now located on the surface of the earth and they cannot remove from there. That is where they've been put and for a time that is where they have to stay. Now then, do you remember when Jesus spoke in Luke 10 verse 18, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now people read that verse and they say, no, 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 but Beresford, that verse means it's already happened. So this war in heaven was ages ago, it's before Jesus came. Now the answer to that is of course not, because Jesus is seeing something in his spirit. Do you remember Ezekiel 3,000 years ago saw, and not only saw, but got a guided tour around the millennial temple that hasn't been built yet? So it's no problem. John, here, sees the whole of the end of the earth, the last 1,007 years of history, and it hasn't happened yet, and he lived 2,000 years ago. So when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he's talking about this event that's yet to happen. But he's seen it in his spirit. He knows it's going to happen. So then, here, during the seven and a half years, three and a half years into the rule of the Antichrist on earth, after the rapture, of the church, now Satan and the demons are all on the face of the earth, and their activity therefore is intensified. But every demon is now on the face of the earth except one lot of demons. And who are that one lot of demons? Right, they're Noah's lot of demons, aren't they, down in Tartarus? Now then, turn with me to Revelation chapter 9. <laughs> 
and we'll see something else. You get it comprehensive here. Now then, remember that Tartarus and the demons in the gathering demoniac said, cried out to Jesus, don't send us into the abyss. All right, the word abyss, Greek abusos, the pit, the bottomless pit. Revelation 9. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now then, here, you get stars, all right, in the sense of asteroids and meteors, and there are different words in Greek for each, but when you get a star holding a key, obviously it's a picture of a person, and if it's a star, it's an angel, all right? So here, an angel comes down, and he's got the key of the bottomless pit. He's got the key of Tartarus. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. Um, go down, from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions over the earth. Now, that whole thing, if you read through it, we haven't got time to now, but what's happening here is that these demons consigned to Tartarus before the flood are now released onto the face of the earth. They're set free. And remember, the specific thing about these demons, they were so terrible and evil that God locked them away. In this seven-year period of earth, on, on earth, it's God's judgment on the earth. And therefore, they're released again. And they are the most terrible, most insidious beings you can imagine. They're not like demons. They're not spirits anymore. And you see, they have the power to materialize and be solid. And that is why, when you read down, the appearance of them is so weird and grotesque. These are monsters. I mean, horror films today don't come anywhere near the horror of this time on the earth. And can you now see that every demon there is, along with Satan, in the last three and a half year period, before the second coming of Christ, the whole lot are on the surface of the earth. Can you see how terrible the tribulation is? Can you see how unimaginable it is? How awful? Now, this is the reason. And pe I mean, people who say that the church goes through the tribulation are simply revealing that they don't understand what the tribulation is. And we will not go through that time. We will be free of it. We, the church, will be raptured and be in heaven. So then, Here's the point that now every demon on the face of, is on the face of the earth. The evil through them is intensifying for the last three and a half years. Turn with me to Revelation 19. And in verse 11 we have the actual second coming of Jesus to establish his throne on the earth. And now, remember, the last three and a half years of, of Earth's history before Jesus comes again, all right? It's the most terrible period you can imagine. Every demon is on the face of the Earth. And in verse 11, you start with the second coming of Jesus. But what we're interested in is verse 20... Uh, is verse... Um, no, sorry, is chapter 20, all right? Because after the second coming, Jesus establishes his thousand-year reign on Earth. In chapter 20, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, it's the same one, he's a busy boy, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit, Tartarus, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon and the ancient serpent, who is the devil of Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him in the pit, shut it over, sealed him. Now, because Jesus has come again, now Satan and all the demons are chucked back down into Tartarus, the whole lot of them together. 
And now there's not one on the surface of the earth while Jesus rules on the earth for a thousand years. So Satan and all the demons get a thousand years down in Tartarus. Now if you move on to verse 7 and 9, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be loosed from his prison, alright? And he'll come out, deceive the nations, and in verse 9, uh, they marched up over the broad earth, etc. Fire came from heaven, consumed them. And the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet were. So what happens now is after the thousand-year reign of Christ, just at the end of it, the last little bit of it, Satan and all the demons are let loose again. There's a big rebellion on the earth, kind of like the end of the tribulation. But Jesus zaps it on the spot, all right? No problem. He quells it. Now, when he does that then Satan and all the demons are cast into the lake of fire. And of course it's that point as well where the universe goes up in smoke, you can read about that in Peter, and then you get the final judgment of all the unbelievers, alright, they're raised from the dead and thrown into the lake of fire, and then you get the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state. But here what we're interested in is the fact that Satan, alright, he's been on the earth, alright, then Jesus comes, thrown down into Tarshish for a thousand years, released again him and all the demons. Then, right at the very end, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And in Matthew 25, verse 41, and this is important, when you get the judgment of the sheep and the goats, and the judgment of the sheep and the goats is the judgment of the believers and unbelievers who are on the earth at the second coming, and Jesus separates them the believers here who are saved and the unbelievers over there. And the unbelievers, he says, depart from me into the lake of fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. And it's important to realise the lake of fire was put there to punish and judge Satan and the demons. The only reason that men and women who die without faith end up there is because they have followed the evil one. Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. Until you're born again and become, you know, a child of God, you're a child of the devil. And you will spend eternity where your father and therefore where your heart is, you see. So the lake of fire was created for Satan. Unbelievers, they shared the same sin as Satan, therefore they will share the same eternal judgment as Satan as well. With all that said, turn back to Ezekiel 48. And again, we'll put this all together. I only read a few verses from Ezekiel. And I did that on purpose. I didn't read them all, because some of them wouldn't have made too much sense. Ezekiel 28. Right. And we'll pick up, all right, from verse 14. As the anointed guardian cherub I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. You understand all that that is? In the midst of the stones of fire you walk. Now in the Bible, the stones of fire are either angels or Jesus. I haven't got time to go into that. In the midst of the stones of fire. Again, here you see it, Satan walking in the midst of the stones of fire. What is walking in the midst of? Walking up and down on? It means you own it. Satan was number one of all the angels. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. You see, there you've got it. The angels were created. They weren't born, they were created. Now then, let's move on, and these are the bits we didn't read. Till iniquity was found in you. Now what we're going to see is that in the verses we're going to read now, you have three stages of Satan's fall, if you like. Firstly, his fall from grace when he lost his job and authority in heaven. 
Secondly, his literal fall from heaven when he was kicked out once and for all. And then thirdly, his eternal state in the lake of fire. Now then, till iniquity was found in you. There's the first fall. You see, Satan sinned. He lost his place. His, he lost his position. It's authority in heaven. In the abundance of your trade, or in the abundance of your prosperity, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. There's the second one. In the tribulation, he's kicked out of heaven. I cast you from the mountain of God. And the guardian cherub drove you out. Now, this is, all right, still future, when there's the war in heaven, all right, and Satan gets kicked out, all right, by Michael and that, thrown out of heaven once and fall down to earth. And he's driven out by the guardian cherub. He's been replaced. He's been replaced. Now, look what happened. Satan wanted more than he had. He wanted to be God. He was simply number one below God. He wanted more than he had. He lost the lot. He lost the lot. And Jesus said, if you lose your life, you'll gain it. What you're willing to let go of and stop grasping onto, you'll get. But if you grasp onto it, you'll lose it, just like Satan did. He lost the lot. He wanted to be number one, but that was sin. Now he's not even number two. He's number N million, right at the bottom. And a guardian cherub drove you out from the midst of the stones of fire, from the midst of the angels in heaven. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. There's the first fault. Satan sinned, lost his authority in heaven. I cast you to the ground. There's a second one. All right? Still future. Kicked out of heaven, down to earth. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profane your sanctuaries. So I brought forth fire from the midst of you till it consumed you. I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and you shall be no more forever. There I brought forth fire from the midst of you till it consumed you, the lake of fire. The final judgment and eternal sight of Satan and all the demons. So, Satan, a biography.